As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 1. Need to have George and Cece up here on stage singing uh, with Paul today. Uh, they are brother and sister, and George is also the worship leader in our Spanish worship service at 1230. So, so uh, George, we're glad you were singing with us and thankful for how you're serving the Lord. How old are you right now, George? He's 18, and uh, he's the next big name in Christian music, so uh, uh, thankful for, for George. Question for you, how many of you love to wait? I mean, waiting is just the favorite thing that you do in your life. I finally have one hand. I've asked that in all three services. Nobody has raised their hand, but we have a winner. One person likes to wait. Americans spend approximately 37 billion hours a year waiting in line. And we've developed a lot of unwritten rules whenever it comes to waiting. Uh, How does it make you feel when you're at the grocery store? And you know what you do when you have a big cart of groceries. You kind of stalk the lines and you decide, okay, which one's going to be my best gamble? And eventually, once you're committed, you're committed, you know, so you have to pick a line. But what I do is I always find somebody else who's getting in line about the same time as I am because then it's on. You know, it's like, I'm going to get through the line before they did because I have the better ability to pick lines. But whenever I'm standing in line and I see them pay and go on out to their car and I'm still waiting, I'm like, man, what's going on? I'm like spiking Fruit Loops and yelling at my cashier, can't you scan faster? I really don't do that. But, you know, I mean, it just it infuriates you because you're like, I, I picked the wrong line. Or, or uh, uh, how does it make you feel when you're in line somewhere and someone cuts the line? Ooh. Yeah, yeah. It, it can make perfectly rational moms and grandpas just become instantly violent. Why? Because waiting stinks. But if we're going to have to wait, we at least want it to be fair. We're also a little quirky about waiting. One of the Houston airports was having an inordinate amount of complaints about waiting at the baggage claim. So here's how they solved the problem. They increased the walk to the baggage claim about six times. So, amazingly, when people had to walk a long ways from the gates to the baggage claim, they quit complaining about the weights at the baggage claim. Even though it still took the same amount of time for them to get their luggage, they just didn't really notice because there was a diversion. After World War II, people started complaining about long waits at the elevator. And so have you ever noticed whenever you're waiting for an elevator, there's often mirrors around? That really became a a main thing around World War II because they discovered that if they would put mirrors up, that people would spend that time looking at themselves and, you know, fixing their hair and being vain and all that kind of stuff. And so they quit complaining about the elevator waits because they had something else to do. Well, today we're going to look at a couple who was caught in the waiting game. They were caught in a waiting loop. Their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were relatives of Jesus, and because of that, unknowingly, they were part of the royal family. They were part of the family in which the king of kings would be born, the family in which the king of kings would be raised. We are beginning a series where we're working through the book of Luke. Now, how I'm going to do this, I'm going to divide. It's going to take me a while to get through Luke. It's a big book. But I'm going to divide it up into smaller series. And the first of these is a series that we're calling the Royals, 
chapters 1 through 3. It's not about baseball, but it's about the royal family, the family into which Jesus was born. Zechariah was waiting. He was waiting for his big career moment. Elizabeth was waiting. She was waiting to be a mom. And together, they were waiting. They were waiting on God. They were waiting on God to reveal to them what their legacy should be. Why was it that he put them together? What is going to be the lasting legacy of their marriage? Their story begins in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. So here, is, here are Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are preacher's kids, if you will. Both of them grew up in the priestly line. They grew up going to the temple. They had fond memories from childhood there in the temple. They were good kids. Whenever they grew into adults, they were good young adults. They made wise choices, and they got married, and they looked forward to a life together. They looked forward to starting a family. Verse 6 says that they were righteous in God's sight. Then it expands that they were living their life without blame. They were living a godly life. I envision that every morning they had daily devotionals. They listened to Christian music and had KLTY as one of the presets on their chariot. They tithed. They went on mission trips. They served on ministry teams. They probably even taught a life group. I bet they would even sign up to teach a preschool life group. Nobody teaches a preschool life group. You know, that's how committed they were. They would volunteer for VBS. They were frequently involved in the mission of God. And I would imagine that their life was very busy. They lived full lives, and people would look at them and think to themselves, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, are real, they really have it together. They are role models for us and Sometimes they probably were told about what a wonderful life and what a wonderful marriage they had. But in verse 7, we see that they had a problem. The Bible says they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. Now, there are two large obstacles here. Number one, they have no children. In that society, in the ancient times, if you did not have children, there was a massive stigma that went with it. It was very derogatory, particularly towards women, and they would blame it on the woman, and they would look at her as if she were a second-class citizen, and they would often put shame and condemnation upon the couple. They would ask, okay, which one of you sinned, or did your parents sin in some way? And so not having children was something that was very, uh, a very, very deep wound for them. And every day they would pray and they would ask God that He might bless them in this way, but now they were growing older. And so their hopes were beginning to fade. So here's the problem. You have two good kids. They did the right things. They trusted in God. And yet, as they prayed, God was being silent. 
there are times in life where it just seems like God is quiet. And it seems like nothing's happening. And He's not doing anything. And it's easy during those times where God is quiet to begin to retreat back into our fears and maybe uh, absorb ourselves in our questions and ask some of those questions of doubt. Why am I doing this? Why am I faithful? Why do I give my time and my money? Why, why do I serve? Why do I believe? It seems like a lot of other people don't believe. Why not run off? Why not rebel against my heritage? Why not live life like most people do and just chase after money and things? Why not party like Johnny Football? When you're waiting on God, the temptation is to ask, where is this going? Is there anything to this faith walk? Is there anything to this story? Well, in verse 8, the story continues, and the Bible says, when his division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened. It happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this is big news. There were about 23 groups of priests, and about once in a lifetime, if you were lucky enough, you could be chosen to go behind the curtain at the temple and offer the incense on behalf of the people. So Zechariah, he is chosen. It happened. This is a huge moment in his life. In verse 10, at the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. So imagine the scene. You're at the temple. It's very ornate. Uh, the whole assembly is gathered. They are praying outside. Zechariah goes in behind the curtain on behalf of the people because he's going to burn the incense. He gets behind the curtain, and verse 11 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. This is a huge moment in his life. All the people are gathered. I, I hesitate to frame it this way, but it was a career moment for Zechariah. He goes into the temple on behalf of the people. I'm sure he had friends and family that had come just for that moment. They were excited. They had their Caesar phone out. Hey, hey, look, Zechariah, he's going in now. Make sure you catch this. They had plans for lunch. They were going to go over to their relative Mary's house. She had this great fiancé who made an amazing brisket, and they were going to enjoy lunch together. Uh, Zechariah, he was going to be interviewed by a reporter from the Jerusalem News. I mean, this was a huge moment in his life. He gets behind the holy curtain, and there's something that's not supposed to be there. Have you ever had that moment where you are startled by something that's not supposed to be there? Back in December, we were celebrating my eight-year-old Karis's birthday, and we always like to get them balloons, you know, do the whole party thing for, for their birthday. Well, Karis uh, likes this cartoon figure, Sophia the First. If you don't know who Sophia the First me is, it means you're getting a little older, okay? Uh, she's a cartoon princess, and so Stacy gets her this huge balloon 
of Sophia the First. It's kind of uh, shaped like an upper torso, and and Karis ties that to her chair in the dining room. Well, a couple days go by, and I'm coming out of the master bedroom. The lights are kind of dim in the house, and I look over to the dining room, and there's a silhouette of a person in the dining room. Now, you know where this is going. Instantly, we go into fight or flight. And I'm like, I was proud of myself. I was ready to fight. I was like, man, I'm going to taekwondo that thing, and I'm, I'm going I'm to take it down. You know? And finally, I realize it's just a balloon, and my heart kind of, you know, it's beating like crazy. I'm like, okay, okay, the kids are all right. I, I was proud that I didn't run to Stacy and say, hey, you've got to take care of this guy in the dining room. You know? But uh, so, so, so the angel appears to Zechariah standing there behind the curtain. And when the angel appears in the Bible, People don't look at the angel and say, hey, let us play the harp together. When the angel appears, people are scared. I mean, they are terrified of the angel. So in verse 13, the angel says to Zechariah, do not be afraid because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John and there will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. So the angel says to Zechariah, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Zechariah is like, I know. I'm here burning the incense. I've been waiting for this all my life. And the angel's like, no, better than that. Your wife is going to have a baby, and not just any baby. Your wife's going to have John the Baptist. And we've been praying, your your people have been praying for many, many years for a deliverer. John the Baptist is going to play the role of the forerunner who's going to go forward before the Messiah and announce the Messiah's birth. Oh, and by the way, he's never going to drink beer or wine. (laughs) You're like, well, why is that put in the the passage there? Well, it's because the, the angel was telling Zechariah, This man, this child, was going to be separated. He has been chosen by God for a divine purpose, and he was fulfilling part of the salvation history which runs throughout all of Scripture. God was intervening into Zechariah and Elizabeth's scene in a powerful and unexpected way. When God intervenes into our scene, it brings with it a crisis of faith. Do I trust God, embrace spiritual courage, and follow? Or do I doubt God, embrace my human fear, and retreat? Let me say that again. When God intervenes into our scene, the intervention brings with it a crisis of faith. Do I trust God, embrace the spiritual courage that He gifts me with, and follow Him? Or do I doubt God, embrace my human fear, and retreat? Well, in verse 18, Zechariah asks a natural question. How can I know this? Basically, he's asking the angel, how can I be certain that what you're telling me is true? And then he brings up the obstacles. For I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah is human. 
and he has some questions. At some point, all of us will have questions that we ask of God here on the fallen side of eternity. So Zechariah asked the question, how can I know this? Can you give me a sign? How can I be certain that this is going to happen? And then number two, how are we going to get past these obstacles? Look, angel, I'm an old man. And my wife, Zechariah was smart here. He said she's well along in years. He didn't say she was old. He just said she's well along in years. In your walk with the Lord, you're going to have questions. Questions are part of being human. Job had questions. We looked at him a few weeks ago. The businessman that lost everything that he had. He had questions of God. He did not sin. He continued to have faith in God, but he had questions. Last week, we looked at Esther, the beauty queen who turned into a great woman of valor. She, too, had questions as she faced the danger that God had called her to. Mary and Martha, when their brother Lazarus died, they had questions. Thomas had questions. Everyone has questions, and questions reveal to us the gaze of our faith. Your faith is only as strong as the object or person in which you are looking for answers. And when you have those questions, the key thing is, where is your gaze fixed upon? Are you fixed upon temporary diversions, hoping that somehow you'll find the answers to your questions there? Or is your gaze fixed upon the Lord, realizing that it is in the all-sufficient strength of God that you'll find the answers to the questions that you have? Often we try to deal with the waiting periods in life with temporary things. We try to answer the restless questions of the soul with things that are simply temporary diversions. The weight at the baggage claim doesn't seem nearly as bad if you have to walk a half a mile before you get there. I can handle the line at the grocery store if I can get my hands on a bag of peanut M&M's. Amen. Don't you love the peanut M&M's? And if I can just have that little temporary 250-calorie diversion of sweetness, life will be okay. I can deal with waiting on God. I can deal with waiting for God to answer my prayers as long as I have my Baylor football and as long as I have Michael and Kelly in the mornings, everything's good. But there's a problem with temporary diversions, and that is that by definition, a temporary diversion is temporary. And in the end, it it always fades It always disappoints in some way. Well, in verse 19, the angel answers him. The angel's not exactly happy. The angel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you the good news. Verse 20, you have to get into character here. Verse 20, there's an exclamation point. The angel says, now listen. He's not speaking in his Mr. Rogers voice. Now listen. He's saying, now listen. You'll become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zechariah, you want a sign? I'll I'll give you a sign. You're going to be silent. You won't be able to talk. 
until the baby's born. That's going to be your sign. Now, I love the last part of the verse. In their proper time. Some translations say, at the appointed time. There was a proper time. God was not ignoring them. God had heard their prayers. God was listening. And he told Zechariah, hey, Zechariah, you need to be quiet and let me do my thing. You need to be quiet and listen. Let me be God. You ever have God tell you, just quit talking so much. Just be quiet. Let me be God. Sometimes he tells us that. A lot of you are thinking right now, I wish God would tell you that, Lash. (laughs) Just be quiet. Let God be God. God had heard their prayers. He hadn't lost interest. He was just waiting for the proper time. God was at work in His divine sovereignty. He was bringing to pass the events that would lead to the birth of Jesus Christ. I hope you know this today. God will turn your hope into reality. He'll turn your faith into confidence. He'll turn your questions into answers. He'll turn your waiting into joy. But He'll do that in His own ways at His own appointed time. And so He tells Zechariah, hey, quit talking and just watch me work. Watch me do my thing. Well, verse 21 says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. That's a very kind biblical way of saying that the people were outside going, what is taking so long? They're checking their sundials, you know. Why is he still in there? When he did come out, he could not speak to them. And then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary And he kept making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. You see, some of the difficulty that Elizabeth had meant that even whenever she did conceive, she was still a little bit scared to go public with it. And she waited until she was pretty far along before she went out in public. And she said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. This is a story about waiting. It's a story about hope, and it's a story about God. As we look at these biblical stories, I want you to understand this, that the hero of the story is God. For many of us... uh, It's our story. We can relate to it because we too find ourselves in a season of waiting. And during those seasons of waiting, when it seems like God is quiet, we're tempted to ask those questions, do I stay or do I go? Do I quit or do I keep doing it? Do I serve or do I sit? Do I believe or do I rebel? Do I stay in this marriage? Or do I run? Do I maintain my ethics? Seems like everybody else in my company cheats. Why do I try to do it honestly? Do I maintain my integrity? Or do I cheat and take the easy way out? Do I go forward in faith? 
trust in God even though I can't see the future? Do I trust and have my confidence in the God that is? Or do I retreat into my fears and begin to nurture them and fester them and do nothing but live a life of smallness and temporary diversion? I want to remind you of some things today. I want to remind you that God does indeed hear your prayers. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He listens to you. He knows what's going on in your life. And I want to remind you that at the proper time, God will turn your faith into reality. Now, one thing that we have to be aware of is that our faith is eternally connected to our hope. In Christianity, we have this doctrine called hope. And whenever we talk about hope, it's different than whenever politicians talk about hope. We're not talking about hope that you get a bigger raise next year or hope that your children make wise decisions. We're not talking about hope that Jerry Jones will figure it out and the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl this year. When we talk about hope in Christianity, it's attached to heaven. Because the hope that we have in Christ is found in the cross. It's found in the resurrection. It's found in the forgiveness that comes by believing in Christ. It's found in the purpose that is brought into our life through God's all-sufficient grace. And it's found in the hope that beyond the window in which I live here on planet Earth, my life is connected to eternity. That is the hope that we talk about. And until you really begin to understand that heaven is not just wishful thinking, it's not the happy ending, the happily ever after ending of the Christian story, but that heaven is a real place and that eternity is in our future. Until you really begin to develop that thought process and that understanding, you're going to struggle as you go through adversity. You're going to struggle whenever you have those seasons of waiting and it seems as though God is quiet, whenever you begin to realize that your life today is connected to God's eternal purposes and even whenever you go through difficulty today, God is faithful and God at His appointed time in His own way will turn your faith into reality that sustains you. Your faith in God is not misplaced. And so I want to end with three statements. If you want the full wording of these statements, I'll put them out online this week and you can have the full wording. Statement number one, our Lord knows your suffering because He too had to endure suffering. He had to push through criticism and He had to seek strength to sustain his faith. Statement two, the anxiety of waiting is not solved by temporary diversions, but by the presence of the one who is all-sufficient. And statement number three, in his own way, at his own time, God will make his appearance. Believing this, brings patience and joy to the wait. One of my favorite preachers is Charles Stanley. 
longtime pastor of First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia. Stanley wrote a book on waiting on God, and one of the great statements of that book is that our willingness to wait reveals the value we place on the object we're waiting for. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? If today is a moment in your spiritual life where you need to make a decision, perhaps God's leading you or you and your family to join this church. Perhaps God's leading you to make a decision such as baptism. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. I'll be here at the front. I'd love to pray with you, help you with any questions that you might have. I'll be here during this song. I'll be here after the service as well. It's always my joy to be a pastor to you and help you at those decision points in your journey. If you could bow your heads with me, I want to ask a question, and I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I won't call you out. But I just want to know, because I'm about to pray for those that are in a season of waiting, how many of you would say, Lash, I'm in one of those seasons of waiting right now. Would you just lift your hand right where you are? I won't embarrass you. won't call you out or anything like that. Lash, I'm in a season of waiting right now. Would you just pray for me? It's my honor to do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you are all-sufficient. Lord, if we open our hearts and we're honest before you, sometimes it's hard. There's a grind to our life, and it just seems like a struggle sometimes. But we know that you love us, and we know who you are, and we know that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who has gone through this thing we call life, and they can testify to the validity of our faith. And so we place our trust in you, the all-sufficient one. We pray, Lord, that we may not be satisfied by temporary diversions, and Lord, help us not to fill all our days with things that don't matter. Help us to fill our days investing in those things which will last for eternity. And Father, we look forward to at your appointed time when you reveal yourself to us. And Lord, when you do show us yourself, your purposes, your ways, may we not cower in fear and retreat into our human emotions, but instead... May we embrace the courage that you bless us with through your Spirit and go forward in faith. And Lord, I pray for those that are in this season of waiting, that you might give them the greatest gift you can bless them with, the gift of your Spirit. I pray, Father, that they might have patience and joy in the wait. And as we look around and we see the struggles of life, may we not miss the blessings of life because they are there. May we find delight in them. May we find joy in those blessings. And may we go forward knowing that you are a good and loving God who has great things in store and is using our life as a part of your story. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.